You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 29, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me for episode 29, where we'll be discussing Overcharge, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare, a new book by Professor David Hyman, who's also MD and JD, teaches at the Georgetown Law School. And I've had a number of requests for this author, and so it's really kind of thrilling for me to have him on and to discuss why healthcare in America is so expensive and also solutions for fixing the problems we have. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank your friend for sending you my way. And please hit the subscribe button. And also, if you're a repeat listener, make sure you hit the subscribe button. It costs nothing. On your favorite podcast player, that way you don't miss a single exciting episode of The Paradox. <laughs> anyway, today, all the notes for today and the things we're talking about, including the link to the book for Dr. Hyman, for Professor Hyman, will be located at theparadox.com slash 029. You can also go to the patreon.com slash theparadox, and there you can subscribe to become a patron supporter of the show, where all the money raised goes to production and promotion of the show. There's also some bonus materials, and it's a great way of alleviating the guilt you have for consuming a show for free for so long. <laughs> anyway, again, today's episode, we're going to talk about the American healthcare system as we usually do, but we're going to discuss the reasons and incentives that exist within the healthcare system that cause things to be so expensive, whether it's pharmaceuticals, physicians, hospital systems, third-party payers, and then Professor Hyman's going to also go into solutions. I would highly recommend the book, Overcharged. It's fairly inexpensive. There'll be a link to it on the show notes page, as I mentioned before, but it's well worth a read. And you know, it's getting to that time of the year. It's probably a good stocking stuffer, although it would have to be a very large stock, stocking. Let's just say it'd be a good one to put under the tree. So anyway, my discussion with Professor Hyman on Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. Enjoy. Well, hello, I'm here with Professor David Hyman. He's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and professor at Georgetown University Law Center, teaches or has taught healthcare regulation, civil procedure, 
insurance, medical malpractice, law and economics, professional responsibility, consumer protection, and tax policy. While serving as special counsel of the Federal Trade Commission, Professor Hyman was principal author and project leader for the first joint report ever issued by the Federal Trade Commission and Department of Justice titled Improving Healthcare, A Dose of Competition in 2004. He's also the author of Medicare Meets Mephistopheles, which was selected by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce National Chamber Foundation as one of the top 10 books of 2007. Today we're discussing his new book, which he co-authored with Charles Silver, called Overcharge, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. Professor Hyman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on because I've had a number of people email me uh, saying, you've got to get David Hyman on the show. His book's great. So I appreciate you sending the book out to me and me going through it. I'm also appreciative that the last 100 pages were actually endnotes, and so I didn't have to, so it was not actually as long a book as I'd initially intended, expected it to be. Um, yeah. Uh, well, we're both Charlie Silver, my co-author, and I are both uh, academics, uh, and so you know we tried to write a book that was accessible, but also was you know solidly based in the literature. What do we know about the actual performance of the healthcare system? So, although the book is full of stories that'll make you angry, each and every one of them is true, and we've got endnotes that'll direct you to <laughs> chapter and verse on right. the basis for what we're saying. Yeah, it's actually a very readable book. It's, and uh, as someone who's in, in the thick of it, I guess you'd say, for me, uh, I could relate to most of the things that are in there. I mean, I think there are certainly some things that um, I was not familiar with because there are obviously lots of different fields of medicine. But why don't you just go into the general idea of the book and sort of the problems you recognize in healthcare in the United States, because we're just talking about the U.S. healthcare system, and then your basic lessons. So the the book... Uh, part one of the book is basically about painting a picture of the performance of the U.S. healthcare system. Um, and it's an issue that I think we're now seeing bipartisan understanding and, uh, you know, recognition that there are these problems, that American healthcare costs a lot of money, um, that nobody's particularly happy with the system. Uh, the patients aren't thrilled about the cost. The employers want to uh, figure out how they can get out from under the system. Healthcare providers uh, feel frustrated and they, you know, don't feel like they control their destiny or really their ability to get practice high quality medicine. Uh, the government uh, is pulling its hair out because the costs of Medicare and Medicaid and the other programs are growing steadily and crowding out other things. Um, and, you know, we obviously have had had uh, an ongoing fight about <clears throat> what federal policy ought to be with regard to health care. Uh, and so for all of those reasons, you know, this is a highly controversial area. Healthcare is personal for people in ways that lots of other social policies are not. Uh, so we paint a portrait of, you know, a very big, uh, very expensive sector of the economy uh, whose performance is really not so impressive, right? In other sectors of the economy, we see you know, falling prices and increasing in quality. In healthcare, we see ever-increasing prices and serious questions about uh, some of the quality of care that's actually being delivered. And it doesn't really match very well onto what patients' preferences are, right? They're often ignorant of the details of what's being done to them. Um, there are some bad actors in the industry, and we sort of lay out chapter and verse 
folks who they are. And we try and identify what the core, you know, economic drivers are as to why the sector or the economy isn't performing very well. Yeah, I think it's a, I mean, we've talked in this podcast extensively about the, uh, about healthcare and sort of the costs and third party system and the perverse incentives that are exist within the system. And so, I mean, it's almost like if you try to design the most expensive, the most irrational sort of uh, delivery mechanism for delivering healthcare, you couldn't c- come up with a better, more ridiculous system than what we have in this country. Well, it, it's uh, funny. It's funny you say that because the original working title for the project was "Expensive by Design." That is, <laughs> that literally the if you look at the incentives and the performance of the. Se- System. It behaves in every way as if its primary goal is to move as much money as quickly as possible from outside the healthcare system into the healthcare system without regard to, you know, quality, necessity, cost benefit analysis, patient preferences, any sort of reasonable fiscal policy. I could go on, but you get the point. Expensive oh, yeah. by design. Now, the reality, of course, is it wasn't really designed to be expensive. It's just that's the way it worked out. Many of the people working in the system are obviously, in fact, most of the people that are working in the system are conscientious, hardworking. They want to do their best, but good people can't save a bad system that has bad incentives. Right. And I think it's important to remember that they are just people in the system. And so if you put in, if you lie the incentives down, in order to move things in a certain direction, like increase reimbursement or increase utilization of resources, that that is ultimately what's going to happen. Um, and no matter how much you may tell people that they shouldn't do something, if the incentives are aligned in, a, in such a way that it that it pushes them in a, in a direction that may not be best for everybody, that that's where the, the system will, on aggregate, sort of move, right? Yeah, and so I, I agree Completely. I mean, people respond to incentives. And what I tell my students is, look, if you don't like the way the system is performing, don't, you know, wail and moan and gnash your teeth about if only people were better. Change the incentives and then things will start to look very different. Yeah, right. Well, and I feel like, you know, if you look at the founding of this country, there is definitely recognition that people will make the wrong decisions. And so when they they design the, you know, the, the government, the federal government, they designed it with the the expectation that people would there would be bad actors and there would be people who would be prone to try and exert more power than they should and so they had checks on it right and so by the same token you probably should have if you want to have a system that makes sense you try and have the same sort of um, same sort of uh, checks in place as as if possible. When you start the book out talking about pharmaceuticals and the patents and monopoly system. Why don't you talk about sort of how you think that the pharmaceutical industry is one of the large drivers of the cost and maybe some solutions to fixing that? So we start with pharma um, partly because it's one of the most visible uh, aspects of the healthcare system where people are very focused on the cost of drugs. Um, it's a very complicated sector. It's a highly regulated sector of the economy, right? You can't just sort of decide you're going to be in the pharma business and start selling product to patients. Um, there's a sort of extensive regulatory oversight through the FDA uh, and limitations on you know what you have to establish before they'll even let you uh, sell the drug and how you can go about marketing and so on and so on. Uh, additional complications are, 
you know, we have branded drugs and generic drugs, and then we also have biologics and the nature of the problems in each of those industries are different from one another. And the kinds of solutions that we propose in the second half of the book are different for the branded uh, and generic in sectors of the industry. Um, so, you know, we start off with Martin Shkreli, everybody's favorite villain, uh, the guy who, you know, jacked up the price of Daraprim uh, 5,000%. Um, and the reality as we lay out in the book is that Shkreli was following a path that had been laid down by lots of other companies, most of whom never got the same public attention. And in the scheme of things, there are at most 10,000 prescriptions for Daraprim every year. Uh, so his, even if you, you know, account for the dramatic increase in the price per pill, uh, that particular scam was really rounding error in the cost of our drug spending. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a much broader problem. Uh, and we talk about insulin, uh, where we've seen dramatic price increases. Lots of people are upset about that. Uh, you see the same thing when it comes to Viagra uh, and, you know, parallel drug price increases over time. Uh, part of the thing that I think has focused people on this historically has been the large price disparities between what we pay for branded drugs in the U.S. and what they go for in other countries. So we talk about what's driving that. Uh, we you know, PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers have attracted some attention. We talk about that one a little bit as well. Uh, but, you know, every sector of the pharmaceutical um, market, you see varying problems, which have a lot to do with the incentives and the forms of regulation that prevail in that policy space. The core problem with branded pharmaceuticals is that developing them is very expensive, but manufacturing them is very inexpensive. And so you have to figure out a way to price things so that people who are, you know, pharmaceutical executives deciding whether to do, throw money at a particular problem to try and develop a treatment will be able to recoup that fixed investment. And, you know, that, that's the core problem that we have to deal with. Uh, historically, we've dealt with it through patents, uh, our argument in the second part of the book is that prizes are a better solution to that problem because it puts the cost of R&D on budget and it means that it's not borne by, you know, the population of people that have the illness that the drug is intended to treat. So part of the reason why we have problems with orphan drugs is small populations, pharmaceutical companies have a hard time justifying their investment. So I could go on and talk about each of them, but why don't I let you get a word in edgewise? Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. If you're a free market person, there's you're definitely unsettled by the fact that you'd have a, a price system, which I suppose you could imagine there's a way to do that in a market setting in the sense that you could have a foundation or some nonprofit perhaps that's not state funded that would uh, that would raise money to develop medications for, say, you know, Alzheimer's or whatever. Uh, but I think the what you lay out in the book is that you'd have these cash prizes. So essentially, right now we have a patent system where once a manufacturer gets a patent, they have a certain limited time to try and make up all the money uh, that they use in development. And that's where you mentioned that the manufacturing portion is so inexpensive 
because it, it the, the ability to make a generic is is pretty easy for most medications, not all of them, but most of them. Right, biologics so are different than yeah. other types of drugs in that regard. Right, and so you have this limited window where you have to try and get all this. All, you get the patent, and then I think they have a fairly small window to get all the studies done in order to get clearance from the FDA, which can take years and years as well. Uh, and then you've left an even smaller window to try and sell all the sell your product before the patent expires, and that's why you have to, you know, try and make up the the, the difference. I guess you'd say yes. Although um, the book, you know, points out first of all, you see all sorts of misbehavior where pharmaceutical companies try and extend uh, the terms of their patent by right. you know product hopping, as it's called, and um, you know reverse payments to keep generics off the market. Um, so, you know, the, you are correct that they are doing their best to not just recover their R and D costs, but and their costs of, you know, running the tests that the FDA will require, but to make profit, right. That's the business. Yeah, right. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, the patent system is one solution to the problem of getting people to invest in things like developing drugs and testing them, but it's not the only solution. Um, if we didn't have the patent system, we'd have many fewer drugs, right? So our argument is if you're going to, you know, provide uh, encouragement for people to do this R&D, you can do it in a variety of ways. The patent system has some unfortunate consequences. Uh, you know, we, that's a separate issue from whether the FDA is operationalizing its rules in a way that, you know, sensibly balances type one and type two errors. That is approving drugs they shouldn't and not approving drugs they should and having the appropriate, you know, standards for evaluating yeah. those things. Um, but, you know, the existence of patents is fully consistent with a free market orientation, right? Patents protect for a limited time. That's in the constitution, right? Mm -hmm. It protects yep. for a limited time. Uh, people's intellectual property to encourage them to invest in creating that property. The, the language in the Constitution is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Right. Yeah. And I, and the intellectual property argument is is a tricky one, uh, you know, because then you have someone like Disney that continues to change. Well, I guess they're more that's more along the, what you're saying, the patent line where Disney continues to make changes and or extend the length of the patent um, because it, and the pharmaceutical companies obviously have as much governmental, uh, uh, I guess, heft to to uh, get away with changing the changing the delivery device or something like that for uh, aerosolized medicine like an inhaler or something and suddenly they can extend their patents um, exactly I mean one of the arguments in the book to circle back to the question you asked at the beginning is the heavy governmental involvement in the healthcare sector is problematic because government corrupts medicine and medicine corrupts government right, right. The, uh, healthcare providers feel like their major, uh, you know, payor is the government. And so they spend a lot of time lobbying uh, to try and make sure the flow of funds is continuous. And so we actually talk uh, in the book about uh, Dr. Melgan, um, who, I don't know if you remember this, he's the ophthalmologist in Florida who's currently serving time in a federal penitentiary. Oh, right. Uh, for... Uh, 
shall we say, over-treating Medicare beneficiaries um, that didn't have wet macular degeneration. He was busily giving them uh, injections. Uh, And when the the federal, a branch of the federal government that was responsible for oversight finally woke up to the fact that this was the number one biller in the Medicare program for more or less several years in a row and tried to recoup some of the money, he gave more than a million dollars in campaign contributions to the Senator Menendez from New Jersey, who then went to bat for him uh, with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And as we recount in the book, uh, one of the staffers for Senator Menendez tells a senior government employee at CMS, the Medicare agency, bad medicine is not illegal. These claims should be paid. Now, just think about (laughs) that, right? You have one federal employee telling another federal employee, you shouldn't care that this is bad medicine. Just cut the check. Now, if Senator Menendez had not gotten more than a million dollars in campaign contributions, I doubt that their staffer would have, you know, from New Jersey focused on a South Florida doctor. I'm sure it was coincidence. It's no (laughs) doubt coincidence. So that's an example, obviously, of medicine, you know, medicine corrupting politics. But we also see lots of examples of politics corrupting medicine where, you know, government uh, legislators decide we think doctors should do X, even though expert opinion is that you shouldn't do X. So we talk about the mammogram recommendations as an example of that, where uh one sort of task force made up of epidemiologists and other experts conclude that, you know, absent a family history, you shouldn't be doing mammograms on women until they reach a certain age. I think it was in their forties, they shouldn't do it routinely. The decision should be up to individual women and their physicians. And it was suddenly everybody started running for cover uh, because the Republicans wanted to use this to beat up uh, on the Obama administration, uh, mm-hmm. and they did it quite effectively. And you know, suddenly, the the immediate response was, "No, no, we should do mammograms on everybody, and insurers should cover it." Well, that's just an example of politicians trying to practice medicine. That's right. not end well. Yeah, and and that kind of moves into the next question I had because the other part. Maybe not the other part, but the next part of the book, you discuss the uh, the the problem with physicians and sort of how they how they get paid. I mean, I th- I think in generally speaking, physicians get paid for doing things. Uh, exactly right, and and they do well, go ahead. of them as a result. Right, um, exactly, and they can rationalize to themselves. You know, I'm being careful. I'm being cautious. You know. Um, but when you know when you pay for things, you get those things, and then you get people trying to figure out new ways to do those things as well. Um, but in healthcare, those new ways tend to be focused on what is the government reimbursing for, rather than what's good for the patient slash you know customer. If it was a different sector of the economy, and what we actually the theme we haven't talked about so far, but it's really a key theme in the book is third-party payment is an important driver of these dysfunctions, right? Right. The doctors relatively quickly start to view the insurance company, hospitals certainly start to view the insurance company as their customer rather than, you know, the patient. 
And so they, you know, respond to the rules. Often they'll try and game the rules. But, you know, when, again, when third party payers pay for things, even if those are not the things that uh, their insurers would want, that's what gets done. So we talk about in the book, you can learn a lot about who Medicare uh, is interest. Medicare is designed to serve by looking at the things that it covers and the things that it doesn't cover. So if you've got an elderly patient who, you know, would like to stay in their home uh, and maybe get a little assistance in their home, Medicare's position is, yeah, we're not going to pay for that. Anything you want a doctor or a hospital to do, that will pay for, but right. nothing else. Um, and so third-party payment using insurance the wrong way to pay for lots of things rather than for true catastrophes is an important driver of why our system is as messed up as it is. And I think you had a very interesting example in there about the urologist with the uh, androgen deprivation therapy for um, possibility of prostate tumors and how you are not prostate tumor, but a testosterone influenced tumors. So basically uh, that you could either do an orchiectomy, which is removing the testicles right. uh, or, or you can provide therapy to suppress the testosterone production by the, by the testes for the men. Uh, and they're, I guess the outcomes are equivalent. And so the only difference is the reimbursement, right? And so then you, that someone, I don't know if it was you or someone else did a study that showed that as the reimbursement changed from favoring one, the surgical procedure versus the, uh, the, the medication changed the rate of those occurring. Yeah, you, you, see, you can see clinical practices basically turning on a dime in response to changes in reimbursement, right? People respond to incentives. And we also have examples in the book of payment-induced epidemics and um, you know, epidemics that are cured by uh, reimbursement strategies. So the book uh, you know, gives an example of how a bunch of hospitals in California uh, figured out that if they uh, coded uh, met their Medicare beneficiaries they were seeing with protein deficiency, they got paid more. And, you know, the, the term in the reimbursement code book was quashiorker, which is, you know, a disease that you see uh, in sub-Saharan Africa uh, when there's a civil war, right? The kids with swollen bellies and so on. Well, a significant chunk of Medicare beneficiaries in California were being diagnosed with quashiorker because the <laughs> hospital system, we describe all of this in the book, uh, discover that it would make more money. And then guess what? Uh, a local uh, organization, California Watch, publishes a report that documents this, and suddenly Quashiorker completely disappears from California. It's a miracle uh, as, cure. As soon, all right, as soon as there's any publicity at all, um, you see this. And there, you know there are other examples which are sort of less uh, overt bad actor behavior. The book talks about how um, it looked like uh, pneumonia had been dramatically reduced, uh, but it turned out a change in the reimbursement system meant if you coded pneumonia as sepsis, you got paid a little more. And so if you added those two figures together, uh, you discovered that the rate of pneumonia was exactly the same. It was just people were now coding it as sepsis. Yeah. Right. I mean, the fact that you even have a coding system 
at all is suggests sort of a perversion in the system, right? You should just be treating the patient who's in front of you and not worrying about what their mm. their code is. But that's that's a reflection of the third party system. Exactly, it's uh, third parties. You know, have documentation requirements to make sure they're paying the right amount for the right thing to the right person, uh, and then people figure out ways to you know in, scam the system or less you know, pejoratively be creative in their billing practices. Right. Well, you, you, I mean, there are, I can tell you countless times when, when I was a resident and you needed a chest film on someone because you had put a new line in or, um, they were having some trouble breathing and you wanted to find out they had pneumonia, but you could never code rule out pneumonia because it doesn't pay, but you absolutely needed the chest film. It was not like, it's not like it wasn't clinically significant to, to perform the test. But you had to find the, I guess you'd say, creative way of, of coding it in, in order to get paid for what someone needed. I mean, that's sort of the opposite of what you're talking about in some ways because that's a right. So that's way, an but, opposite example. But but it's the same thing, the same principle. Same, it's the same phenomena, and you know, bureaucracies tend to be rule focused. Um, my friends who are tax lawyers would call creative coding tax fraud. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and there are instances of, you know, healthcare providers who found themselves in serious trouble uh, because they've engaged in these practices. The book is full of examples of people who went to jail. Uh, you know, it's the old saying, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. <laughs> right. So I had a couple of questions I had in the book that I, I, were, I found difficult to sort, of, uh, to sort of rectify on. Monitoring quality. This is the, this is something that every hospital, I think, is focused on trying to maintain quality standards, to try and uh, reduce infections and and. But it's very, it's a, it's enigma, right? What is quality? What is quality care? What does it look like? I mean, everyone thinks they have, their patients are are sicker than the guys neck across the street. Everyone assumes their their physicians, their providers are better than the people across the street. They're all above average, right? Although theoretically, I mean, mathematically, we're half of us are above average and half are below average. Uh, how do you really study, how do you monitor quality? Because I, I know when you have public reporting, there are lots of perverse, uh, perverse incentives with public reporting that cause all kinds of other problems, like people who really could get received care that's important, that is, you know, potentially successful are unable to get it because people don't want to, uh, they don't want to risk their numbers uh, as if you're a surgeon or a hospital system because maybe their their likely outcomes are a little bit worse. So how do you have, what sort of quality monitoring system would you put in place to try and have it maybe make it easier outside of having people have a relationship with their, their primary care physician who may know the community and may know who's good or bad or where you should go for a certain surgery or procedure? Um, so it's a great question, Dr. Larson. I've actually done a fair amount of work over the course of my career on quality issues. Um, and these are hard issues. There's no denying it, right? We, we have historically thought about quality in terms of structure, process, and outcome. Uh, that is, you know, structure, is this a, a licensed uh, physician or an accredited hospital? Um, and, you know, do they meet our staffing requirements, whatever we want to identify? Those are all static factors. Um, sure. They're, they turn out not to be particularly helpful in dealing with a lot <laughs> right. of problems yeah. that we have, right? So you can, 
there are plenty of examples in the book of people who satisfied the structural requirements, but they're just horrible, horrible doctors and yeah. horrible people. Right. So mm-hmm. the book gives the example of an oncologist uh, in Detroit uh, who told about 550 people, you have cancer. These are perfectly healthy people. And he told them they had cancer so he could give them chemotherapy and bill for it. I mean, just yeah. imagine that. He's not the worst person in the book, uh, but he's close <laughs> in fairness, right? But, you know, he, he went to medical school. He passed the state licensing board. Uh, in fact, if you look at his online evaluations, lots of people liked him. Um, so structure turns out not to be great. Process, you sort of look at what people do. Uh, and, you know, it's based on having either expert opinion or good studies. People with this condition need this thing done. And then you look at how often that gets done. Now, part of the problem is if somebody doesn't see very many patients uh, with a particular problem, it's hard to have a lot of confidence if their statistics are low or if they're high, right? It's just, they see a thousand people with this condition. It's very different than if they see 10, right? Comparing them head to head is going to be- Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, yeah, there's some procedures that there's, no one has enough numbers to make any statistically significant assessment. Exactly. Outside of, outside of like, people can in general know this person is a good operator. I'm just going to look at surgery for instance, but you can, usually people know the good surgeons, the people who are in you know, in the OR suites or, uh, you know, they'll, they'll know who's good. And, and this kind of goes to my, to, I guess, along those lines of the quality, because in most service industries, it's really, I, I would say there are hardly any service industries where there's really any sort of useful quality, uh, quality measurements. I mean, I think you try it in education and it's probably not that good either. Uh, if you look, if you were going to get your car fixed, you're not going to, uh, there aren't any quality nurse, uh, assessments generally, but you word of mouth and sort of, um, right. word of prior experience, right? But, but Dr. Larson, word of mouth and guarantees go a long way in most industries to ensuring mm-hmm. minimum levels of quality, right? So we right. talked yet about surprise medical bills. I hope we're going to get to that, but let me, let me use that as an example. Um, Great. Because we talk about it in the book, right? When I, when I go to give talks on this, I ask the audience, raise your hand if, you or someone you know has gotten a surprise medical bill. This is usually obviously out of network um, bills that people were not aware they were gonna get. And typically 75% of the people in the audience raise their hand. I say, okay, how many of you, after you went to a body shop to have your car fixed, got a surprise bill from the guy who painted the hood or fixed the dent in the fender? And everybody looks at me like, you're crazy, nobody would ever. And I'm like, why do those industries play out very differently, right? It's because there's competition in the market. The body shop owner knows that if he lets his employees send out surprise medical bills, then word of mouth will destroy his business basically overnight, right? Everybody will go on Yelp and say, don't go to this body shop. Well, the problem in healthcare. Uh, is we don't have guarantees and we don't have good information and we don't have by and large, you know, the ability for people to find out either by talking to their primary care doctor or anybody else, who should I go to for this particular problem? So let me, let me circle back to the outcome because I covered structure and process. So outcome is, you know, 
do people get better or do they die, right? The mm -hmm. problem with that is, as you know, you can deliver optimal care and people can have a bad outcome and you can deliver rotten care and people can have a good outcome. And so outcome is itself a problematic measure of quality. The result is many patients default to using, you know, customer service kind of variables to assess quality. They ask, yeah. did I get seen quickly? Was the nurse nice to me? Um, did I feel like I had enough time with the doctor? Um, and those, you know, are not nothing, right? As, as I sometimes tell students, you get much better customer service at the average McDonald's than at the average hospital. Yes. Which is kind of discouraging, frankly. Uh, yeah. But, you know, um, customer service is not nothing, but it's certainly not everything. And so we ought to be working at getting better measures of quality at encouraging providers to pay attention to quality, to deal with the bad doctors in their midst, and to re-engineer their systems to serve their patients rather than the third-party payers. Right. And I, I guess I agree with all those statements. And I, I feel like the underlying problem in all of this is that you have, have third-party payers, the either government or commercial payers, who don't care about you. They don't care what happens. You are at best a statistic, and you know. And uh, I always talk to patients. They're like, you know, what's going to happen? I said, well, I, it's either zero or hundred percent. You know, that something's going to happen. I can give you a percent of what you know, like a hundred people walk through the door, but that doesn't matter to you. You know, it matters to the to an actuarial who's uh, figuring stuff out. But but for but for you, you're, it's only good. It's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. And. And so I, I feel like if we're with third-party payers, it causes so much distortion with everything. The fact that this, the hospitals, providers, pharmaceuticals, no one is really serving the patient. They're always serving, they're serving the people who are, I mean, naturally that the incentive comes from the people who are, who are providing the, the payment for your service. Yeah, we're, we're quite critical of third-party payment because we think we're using insurance to deal with problems that it's not really designed to handle. Um, so you want insurance to deal with catastrophic outcomes that are of a low probability. But for lots of things, our argument is that having people pick and pay for their services themselves uh, creates a very different set of incentives for the providers, right? To pay attention to what their patients want rather than what the third-party payers are willing to pay for. Would you, would you say that a reasonable solution assuming you could do whatever you wanted, because clearly right now we're at a point where no, neither major party is interested in, in substantially reforming the healthcare system. I think maybe you could argue that the, the Democrats want to have a single payer system. And if you think that's a good idea, then I'd recommend you talk to any veteran and see if they'd prefer having their care at the VA or any other hospital. And again, that's a sign that's to your point about good people. We are, they're great people in the VA, but it's just a horrible system. And who thinks the VA system's good has clearly never received any care there or provided care in one of those uh, institutions. Um, but since it's not going to happen, but if it could, if you could do anything, would it make sense to fix Medicare and say, as soon as you turn whatever age, we want to say 65, we're just going to give you $40,000 in the health savings account or whatever you want to call it. And you're just going to get that every year. And then you are going to then disperse that, med that money into whatever healthcare services you want at any time you want. 
And then would that be a, a way of sort of, do you think that would fix a lot of the problems? Because I feel like a lot of it is driven by the elderly and Medicare. So our argument in the book uh, is that we should turn both Medicare and Medicaid into programs that look a lot more like social security, right? The, the, the issues that gave rise to both of those programs is we're worried about people's access to services for healthcare. But both of them didn't give people access to healthcare, they gave them health insurance. And right. often that health insurance is structured in ways that were they spending their own money, uh, they, the, the beneficiaries would not want, they would want something different. So our argument, quite similar to what you just said, is we should basically give people money and allow them to purchase the healthcare services that they want, including coverage against catastrophic outcomes, which would be much cheaper than the kinds of, you know, heavy on the mandates policies that we see in the marketplace right now, right? They cover everything and anything. Uh, and, you know, we also argue that the tax subsidies that particularly people obtain through their getting coverage through their place of employment are fundamentally misdirected, right? They're worth right. more to people who make more, which is kind of dopey. And yeah. they're very expensive. It's the single most expensive tax expenditure, as it's called, uh, is the exclusion of employment-based health insurance from taxable income. So I, I, we, I think we agree with you and in, are in writing on this issue that the way that you enlist consumers to help create competitive forces driving the healthcare system to serve them and their interests. What they actually want is to have people spend their own money and to subsidize people who we think need subsidizing, which includes turning Medicare and Medicaid into programs that look like Social Security. Here's a, a pot of money every year uh, that you can use to spend on healthcare services. Yeah, and and I think it's important to, to point out, I. I just went over the 2018 physicians uh, survey last episode where we discussed uh, discussed the access issues I guess you you call it with the percentage of physicians who don't see or limit uh, Medicare and Medicaid and Medicaid if you're a private owner of a, of a practice you're you limit Medicaid at over 52% I mean it's over 50% of so you may have insurance but no one's going to see you because it doesn't pay anything and so to your point, and Medicare is the same way, right? I mean, there's it does it pays poorly compared to commercial, and so depending on your specialty, you're not you're not going to find anyone to take care of you. I, I agree. When I talk to medical students um, who are you know fixated on access, increasing the share of people in the population with insurance, which you know is not a terrible thing, obviously, but I say to them, fine, you give them the Medicaid. How easy is it for a Medicaid beneficiary who has insurance? to find someone who will treat them. And they all sort of look at me blankly. I say, pick up the phone, call five doctors, tell them you have Medicaid and ask them when the next appointment is. <laughs> right? And I actually, there's a famous case um, that I, when I've given lectures on this in the past, I use, there's a, a case out of Maryland that's now probably about at least 10 years old, uh, a, a young man called Diamante Driver. He was eight years old. He had a toothache. Yeah, covered, right. covered by Medicaid, had a toothache, couldn't find a dentist who would take care of him, went to the ER who didn't have dentists. They said, here's some pain meds, 
try and find a dentist. Couldn't find a dentist. His toothache turns into an, his abscess. His abscess turns into a brain infection. He ends up dying of a toothache. He lived 10 miles from the Capitol in Maryland, bluest of the blue states. They were not, you know, artificially suppressing Medicaid uh, because, you know, they were mean. They had budgetary constraints. And mm -hmm. the result was, you know, a, a eight year old kid dies of a toothache. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I know just when it comes to Medicaid in Michigan, where I live, it's, it's really hard. If you're a private practitioner, you have to limit your Medicaid coverage to, I don't know, maybe 5% or less. Otherwise you can't keep your doors open. Uh, you keep the lights on and that's not, and that's a reflection of all the overhead that goes along with medicine and whatever. But uh, I think it's important for people to recognize that. And the solution many people say is, well, you just force people to take Medicaid. Well, then you either you, you have one or two outcomes there. You either force people to go bankrupt or you force them into large healthcare systems in which <laughs> who can subsidize the, the Medicaid uh, because they get additional funding from the state or the federal government. But I don't think you've but you don't that doesn't change the access issues at all. It, it does not. What we should care about is access to care um, and insurance you know, is a decidedly indirect way of uh, evaluating that question and forcing people to do something that it's not only not in their economic interest to do, they lose money on every patient. There's, there's an old saying in the, the clothing business in New York, you don't make up on volume what you lose on each transaction, right? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, either Medicaid is paying enough to motivate physicians and other healthcare providers to see those patients, or it's not. And if it's not, it's Diamante Driver all over again, the young man who, who died that I mentioned a few moments ago. Right. And 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 using another example from Michigan, it they have fixed the problem with the reimbursement for the pediatric uh, population with dental care. The problem is, and it's caused a proliferation of pediatric dentists, which is not surprising because there's significant reimbursement for that now in Michigan. The problem is they didn't change the reimbursement for anyone else who has to help the, the dentist. So if you're trying to get care at, let's say, let's say the kid has to have a surgery to have, you know, 10 teeth uh, pulled or uh, fillings put in, there's no money for the anesthesiologist. There's no money for the facilities. And so these pediatric dentists, then they still can't get their, they, they can't get things done because of course, no one else gets the increase in reimbursement. And so, although they tried to fix the problem, they only sort of half fixed it, which yeah. is just an example of just the government sort of, the government fixing things generally doesn't work out too well because they think about one step down the road as opposed to the three or four they need to. Yeah. So one of my rules of thumb is that everything runs on autopilot, right? Yes. Things just tend to keep being done the way they were being done. And if you make a fix, you tend to focus on the specific narrow fix that motivated you you know, to, to identify a problem and to address it rather than thinking systematically. And yes. so an important skill is to think about adaptation, right? What's going to happen next, right? If I do mm -hmm. this, what will the other side do if you're talking about litigation? And if you're a social policy planner, if I want to fix this problem, what are the consequences of fixing this? Will there be systemic consequences? And, you know, legislators uh, to varying degrees are not so good at that. Uh, regulators sometimes get tunnel vision. 
even if they realize there's a problem, they may not have enough money or the regulatory authority to fix it. Um, whereas, you know, if people are spending their own money, suddenly everybody's got an incentive to solve the problems for them. We don't yes. see these problems in other sectors of the economy. The reason why is everywhere else people are spending their own money and providers have a huge incentive. Suppliers have a huge incentive. Sellers have a huge incentive to serve them. Yeah, it seems so simple. But I feel like to get to that point, we almost have, need to... Uh lay down some napalm on the entire industry and sort of start from the start again, because I feel like every time we try and do little fixes, it's, it, it doesn't get to the root of the problem. Right. And, and, um, I'm not quite sure where we're headed at this point. So the good news is the book does not call for the use of napalm, uh, (laughs) nor does it call for, you know, blowing everything up and starting over that our history uh, is that we don't do that, right? We tend to make in- right. incremental changes. So Medicare was an incremental change. It was a big and expensive change, but it was an incremental change to an existing system. The same for Medicaid, the same for the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act, um, the same for PAPACA or Obamacare whatever, or the ADA, whatever you want to call it. All yeah, right. Those are, we don't tend to blow things up and start over because there are lots of vested interests that, you know, yeah, don't want that like happen. See the existing system continue, and people are understandably, you know, very reluctant when the reformer comes in and says, "I'm going to blow up everything you've got and start over." Yeah, it was there was a big difference between the way the Clinton plan, uh, Bill Clinton plan, was framed and sold versus the way that the Obama plan was framed and sold, right? Everybody remembers if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. That made it really clear they were not blowing things up and starting over. So the good news is our book doesn't call for that either. We actually think a lot of these changes are going to come from below uh, through retail medicine as people Mm -hmm. uh, have larger and larger deductibles. Uh, You're going to see lots of pressure for the development of new delivery systems, new ways of delivering care. I don't have a lot of hope that Congress is going to want to do very much in this space. They may do something with pharma, because I think there's bipartisan concern with that issue. Um, but other issues, it's less obvious. So we'll Yeah, see. no, I, I agree. And actually, I, I do think because of the deductible issue and the fact that it, even just getting insured care is so expensive that there are people finding solutions, whether it's through direct primary care, private surgical centers uh, that are uh, just paying cash pay with the entire procedure cost upfront, uh, well known. I mean, these things are happening, and that's and that is a market response. It's it's. Um, I just wish it would happen faster, <laughs> because I don't like being part of the system that doesn't make any sense either. And that, and there's just no way really to uh, get outside of it, especially if you're a specialist like I am. I, it's pretty difficult to try and find to find some way to, to escape right. a system that you know is really not helpful for, for patients. You know people are getting better and you know you're providing good care, but it's you know the cost is tremendous and it's far more than it has to be and it's far more complicated and more heavily regulated than it needs to be. But well, that's just, I guess, where we are. So hopefully, hopefully we can... Uh, and on that happy who... note... <laughs> No, but I, the book, the, to, to be clear, the book is fundamentally optimistic, not about Congress or is. state legislators doing things that will fix this, because it's their decisions that have gotten us into this mess, 
right? It's yeah. It calls for a very different sort of bottom-up strategy. Now, the prizes issue that we talked about earlier, that can only happen with congressional action. The same for fixing the tax preferences for healthcare. Um, but other stuff, as you say, we see it in the market now, right? We see the emergence of single specialty hospitals and of cash-only providers and concierge-level services and retail medicine, right? Where uh, you can go to Target uh, or CVS and see a nurse practitioner, and it's really clear what the prices are, and it's really clear what the scope of services that you can receive are. And, you know, they're open late. They have free parking. Um, for busy parents, they're a lifesaver. Yeah, you pick up a gallon of milk while you're there. Uh, so I'd like to thank you to Professor Hyman for joining me again, the author of overcharge, why Americans pay too much for healthcare. If there's a place people can find more of your writing and more of your stuff, where would you direct people? Um, so overcharged for healthcare.com is the book website. Uh, and it includes links to a couple of chapters that they can read for free and videos that there are a couple of videos that, uh, the publisher made to promote the book that will have interviews with people that we talk about in the book, uh, talking about their personal experiences. Um, and there are also links to both Professor Silver's and my uh, websites at the University of Texas and Georgetown, respectively. Uh, both of us have been working on healthcare for quite a while, and so we've written a bunch of things. Twitter, Facebook? Um, I, I'm too old to understand uh, <laughs> both of those things. So. <laughs> Uh, or too non-adaptive. How's that? That's uh, that's a fair answer. I yeah. I, I don't know how, and it's, and I feel like I kind of understand those. And then there's the Snapchat, Instagram. I have no idea what that's all about, to be honest. So yeah, it, these are my kids' things, not mine. I'm afraid. <laughs> right. So. Well, thank you so much for good for joining me. Happy to do it, Dr. Larson. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.